not a people, but now we're the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Once we lived in darkness, but now we're in light. A priestly people before the Lord. And that makes all the difference for the hope that is within us and the life that we live before Him. So starting in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of God in Christ, we live in a world that hates everything that defines us, everything that is truly good. Now, of course, God does not want us to embrace the ways of the world, but He does want us to live in the world. In theological circles, this is known as the antithesis. The antithesis is the direct opposition that ought to exist in the life of a Christian between the things of God and the things of the world that surround us. It is the law of God set against lawlessness. It is the contrast between darkness and light. The antithesis is love and mercy set against hatred and vengeance. That antithesis, that inherent contradiction between the ways of those who love the Lord and follow Him set over against the ways of those who reject the Lord and rebel against Him, that should define our lives as Christians. And this text begins to help us see what that looks like. As I said, up to this point in Peter's letter, he has been expressing to us who we are. What is our identity? What defines us? What should stand at the heart of who we are? We need to know that. Because all around us are false teachings about who we are, right? The world says you are defined by your work or you are defined by your kids or you are defined by your race or you are defined by your nationality or you are defined by your feelings. And God says, no, you're defined by Christ. You're defined by the fact that you were born in darkness and Christ brought you into the light. That's who you are. But if that's who you are, then that is going to radically transform how you are. 
the way that you live. Now, most of the rest of this letter is going to discuss that. Because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, therefore you must live in this way. And this way is defined by that antithesis. What we see at the start of that discussion of the antithesis is how God calls His people to live honorably in the midst of a dishonorable world. And so that's our theme this morning. God's people must live honorably in a dishonorable world. And that begins with cultivating a commendable lifestyle in order to gain glory for God. That's the first thing we see here, and also the last, frankly. But Peter starts out by reminding his readers who they are. He calls them beloved. Beloved. Not merely saying that he loves them, but reminding them that that's who they are. They are the beloved of God. They are the ones whom God so loved that he sent his only son to die for them that they might live. They are the beloved ones who are sojourners and exiles. Kids, you know what those mean, those words? Exiles are people who have been cast out from their true home, at least for a time. They're sojourners because they're living in a place that's not really their home. They're living there, they're staying there for the moment, but they're not yet there. Israel in the wilderness, they were sojourners, right? They were living out in the wilderness, but they were heading toward the land God had promised them. That made them sojourners. When they were living in Babylon... And when they were scattered throughout the Persian Empire, they were exiles, sojourning in a land that was not their own, but looking forward to the time they would be drawn back. That's who we are today. We often feel out of place. And Peter wants us to know that is to be expected, because you are out of place. Your true home is in the presence of God. And while we're always in the presence of God, we're not in the fullness of that presence because we live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by those who hate the Lord. We're surrounded by temptations to rebel against the Lord. We're surrounded by evidence of of sin and and rebellion and wickedness. And that means we're not fully home. Fully home is where we will be when we get to heaven, or more so when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. When every cell of every item and being thrums with praise to God when there is no evidence of sin or wickedness or rebellion remaining in the world. We will finally be at home. We will finally be in our place. But until then, we are sojourners and exiles and we ought to feel out of place. Now, as those who are out of place, God's people are called to act differently than those who are at home in this world. Specifically, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, he says. Evie just promised, and all of our folks who profess their faith make the promise that they love the Lord and it is their heartfelt desire to serve Him according to His Word, to forsake the world, to put to death their old nature and to lead a godly life. That's what it means to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's not saying 
that the ways of the body are always wrong, that whatever is fleshly is wrong, that the physical world is inherently sinful. He's not saying that. That was the old Gnostic heresy. What he is saying, though, is the old nature against which we still fight is a nature inclined to sin. Again, what we saw last Sunday evening. We have that corrupted nature because of Adam. And while we've been freed from slavery to that corruption, we still fight against it. We fight against those passions of the flesh. We fight against those appetites that war against that which is holy and righteous and good. And he says we need to fight that fight. We need to engage in that battle because those passions war against our souls. Too often, Christians embrace the lusts and the desires of this world as though they were harmless. They say, well, Christ is my Savior, but then they live as though the devil is their king. But listen, regardless of what others might commend, what others might do, we are to be discerning. If Jesus has not approved of it, then necessarily it is an act of rebellion. Remember, our true citizenship is in heaven. Our true king is Christ. And so we owe allegiance to him above all others. No matter what presidents, lawmakers, judges, justices, governors, mayors might say. If what they command us to do or not do conflicts with what our king has taught us to do, we must follow him first. We must follow Him wholeheartedly. It is to Him that we owe our allegiance. And that means we cannot live the Christian life as passive bystanders. That's what I did as a young person. I thought, you know, as long as I go to church, Romans 10, right? As long as I confess with my mouth, believe in my heart, I'm good. How I live really doesn't matter. You know, if if I go along... With the guys at work, it's cool. If I just fit in, I was a newspaper reporter, you know, early, early on I kind of got into the newspaper scene and, and I loved hanging out with the reporters, you know, and I wanted to fit in with them. Well, they're a worldly bunch. The way they talk, the things they prize. And I just wanted to fit in. But then on Sunday I wanted that comfort of knowing that I belong to Christ. And Peter says, you can't do that. It's all or nothing. Either you belong to Christ or you do not. Either you follow Him as your King or you don't have Him as your Savior. And those passions that call you to follow after the ways of the world, those passions that call you to to serve the flesh and the temptations and the sins as though they were your King, they're fighting a battle for your very soul. Folks, understand, this is instruction aimed at each and every one of us. From our youngest children to our most seasoned saints. If you had never put your faith in Jesus, you would not be at war. You would be at peace with the world. You would do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, how you wanted, and you would be fine with it. Because the world would be your home. But when you confessed Christ, when you said, He's my Savior, He's my hope... He's my king. You entered into the battle. Suddenly the Lord began showing you how the ways that once thrilled you constitute rebellion against the Lord. The things that this world treasures are things that God hates. 
the things that this world, that, that fallen society commends, they are things that God condemns. And we need to fight against them. Now that battle, sometimes it happens in a courtroom. Sometimes it happens in a legislature. And those are important fights. But the most important battleground, young people hear this, the most important battleground is not in the courthouse, it's not in the legislature, it's not on a street corner holding a sign, it's in your heart. It's deep within when you're faced with that temptation that you think you can hide from everybody else. It's deep in your heart when all of your co-workers or your classmates are calling you to just fit in with them. To just follow the ways that will feel good. To just do what everybody else is doing. When they show you all the TikToks and the Snapchats that show that this is the way that you're expected to, to live and that your youth is not complete and yet lest you do these things. That's where the fight happens. That's where the true war occurs. And you need to stand firm as those who are beloved, as those who are not at home but are sojourners and exiles. You need to ask what temptations, what desires war against my soul. Because it's going to be different for each one of us. What is it that strives with great power to drag you back into the darkness among those who are not a people? Is it lust for sexual sin? Is it yearning for money, for wealth? Do you crave attention, approval, the pat on the back from society? Or do you covet power? Do you long to control people? Is your desire maybe focused on adrenaline? Getting that next rush from a new adventure, a new thrill. What is it that wars against your soul, tempting you to abandon your first love? And how are you fighting it? Are you depending on your own logic? On your own strength? Because you don't have the strength. And you don't have the wisdom. The only way you can fight that fight is on your knees and together. On your knees, confessing that your hope, your strength, your help is in Christ. That's how we turn from that sin that has held us captive for so long. That's how we grow comfortable standing apart from the crowd. That's how we save the marriage that is about to die. That's how we turn back to those parents who have offended us. That's how we forgive that person who has just got us all twisted up in knots. It's on our knees asking for the help and the strength of God. That's how Evie is going to keep her vow that she made this morning. That's how each one of us is going to follow after the ways of Christ. On our knees and together. When he says at the start of this text, beloved, agape toi, it's plural. He addresses the church together because we can't fight that fight alone. You get drafted into the army, the navy, the marines. First thing they do is break down your individuality. You are not a single person. You are part of the greater whole. Because if you run out on that battlefield alone, all you are is a target. You're dead. You can't do anything. It's only as you come together as part of a team. 
that you can do amazing things, that you can win the battle, that you can take the objective. Well, it's the same in our spiritual life. We are a team. We are together as the body of Christ. Together we are the beloved ones. Together we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. And that means we need to support each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to be there for each other. And we need to so love and trust each other that we're able and we're willing to come to one another and say, I am really struggling with this sin. I need your prayers. I need your accountability. Or I have just been so low lately. It just feels like everything is against me. I'm wrestling with doubts. I need your help. And when that happens, you dare not shame them because you have the same struggles. Instead, get on your knees with them. Walk alongside of them. Help them, encourage them, build them up, strengthen them. Because together, we're able to walk that walk of the antithesis, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice this. The Gentiles refers to the unbelievers. And this is how we fight the fight. We do it on our knees, we do it together, but we do it by living Christian life. It's not rocket science, guys. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That means we live according to this word when they're living according to their feelings. We live according to this standard when they're all defining their own standard based on their feelings. Notice how certain it is. He says, when they speak against you as evildoers, they will speak against you as evildoers. Isn't that ironic? You're striving to do what is good and what is right, and they speak against you as evildoers, and thus it's always been. Until Christ comes back, it will be that way. They will mock you, they will slander you, they will... I mean, look at the the wedding venue in Grand Rapids. All they're trying to do is provide a, a nice place. I don't know the family. I just know what I've read. But they're trying to provide a nice place where people can get married, where they can celebrate their marriage. But in doing so, they don't want to celebrate that which is sinful, that which is abhorrent in God's eyes. And so they've refused to do gay and lesbian and transgender weddings and celebrations. And the world calls them wicked and bigoted and a hundred other names that shouldn't be repeated in church. When you stand on the standards of God's word, you can expect exactly that. You can expect them to slander you and take you to court and fine you as the state is preparing to do there. You can expect them to picket you. You can expect them to pass laws against you. You know how you fight? You don't slander them back. You don't take out full-page ads in the newspaper. Well, by all means... We should seek to influence, we'll talk about that in a minute, we should seek to influence our leaders with the gospel. We should call them to remember that they are held accountable by God. But at the end of the day, we're to keep our conduct among them honorable. We're to show the love and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means... That when they see you behaving in a Christ-like way while they're persecuting you, they will ultimately glorify God. They'll do that in one of two ways. Some of them, on that last great day when they're being condemned, 
God will remind them that they saw you. While they were persecuting you, you were acting like Christ. While they were fighting you and slandering you, you were blessing them and loving them. And they will know, they will openly confess, I had every reason to repent. I saw the image of Christ before me. And others, others will glorify God long before that because seeing your behavior, seeing how you respond to their vileness with kindness, how you answer their curses with blessing, they will be utterly undone. And they will fall to their knees and say, I don't know what you have, but that's what I need. And they will glorify God because they will turn to Him. Your first witness to them will be your response to their slander. But one way or another, God will be glorified. God is always glorified, honored, upheld when we keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So this, first of all, we're to cultivate a commendable lifestyle to gain glory for God. That is warfare, and it is warfare that must permeate our lives. And one of the ways that we do that, and we're not going to take a lot of time on this, but the rest of this book is going to show us ways to do that, to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, to carry out that warfare of living a Christian life as exiles and sojourners. And the first way, it's fascinating to me, that the first way he mentions this, is be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Hmm. Why is that the first way? Well, maybe because most of those human institutions are going to be opposed to us. At our nation's founding, they weren't. Even the deists among our founding fathers had great respect for Christianity and believed that without the morality laid forth in the Bible, the constitutional republic could not long stand. So even the ones who didn't trust in Christ had appreciation for the words of Christ. That is no longer, and that was a minority, a very rare exception to the rule. For the most part throughout history, the governments among men have been comprised of sinful men who hate the Lord and therefore hate those who love the Lord. And yet, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject freely. Submit yourself freely. Set yourself under their authority. But fascinating thing here is how they are described. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. The uh, New King James says every ordinance of man. The New International says every human authority. You see, what's written there, what's rendered in our Pew Bible as uh, institution, is not the word you would expect in that place. It's clearly talking about Leaders among men, formal leaders, those who hold office. But the word is katissis. It's literally creation. To every creation among men. The translations try to do that justice to show that it's talking about governmental authority, but there's a reason that that word is used. It's to remind us, right in the face of this call to submit that they do not exist of themselves. 
they do not exist as that which is ultimate. Those to whom we must submit are those who have been created, who have been established, who have been raised up by God Himself. And so we are subject to them, not because they are inherently worthy of being subject to, not because they are inherently worthy of our honor, but because God put them there and God called us to submit to them. So we do it for His sake, not for theirs. We do it for His honor, for His glory, not for theirs. We do it at His command, and not simply because of their threats. And that's hard. That's hard because so very many of them are ungodly. When Peter wrote this, it's very likely that Nero was on the throne. Nero was a wicked man. Most of the empire emperors were wicked men. And Peter, Peter would have remembered well living under the, the rule of the governor Pontius Pilate with his capricious ways, with his love for injustice and excess. And yet nonetheless he remembers that these men, despite their wickedness, despite their often ungodly ways, they were sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. God uses them to that end. What's amazing is God uses them despite their own wickedness, despite their own lack of understanding, despite the fact that they themselves are hiding from their own hearts the reality that God exists. And yet, God uses them to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Foolish people will say all kinds of ignorant things about us and about the God whom we serve. But when we do good, when we submit to the government, we silence them. Because they look on us and they realize that all of their accusations are lies. All of their hatred is born of something outside of us because we haven't given them a reason to hate. Now, of course, we understand that our submission is to be for the Lord's sake and in the Lord. And that means that when they call us to do that which is contrary to God, contrary to His word or His ways, we must not follow them. Right? We must recognize that they will probably punish us for disobeying, but we must obey God first. And like the apostles in Jerusalem, when we are punished for doing what is right, we should celebrate that we have been counted worthy of suffering for the sake of the name of Christ. But we must serve God first. And we must not be shy. You know, this isn't a call to be Amish, right? We need not be shy about going and casting our vote on Tuesday. Or, again, especially in November. Taking up our calling, our role as citizens in the nation. Our true citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth. But as we live here, Jeremiah 29 reminds us, as it reminds the exi- reminded the exiles of old, that... Our well-being is bound up with the well-being of the nation. So we should strive to get godly leaders over us. We should strive to remind the leaders whom God sets over us that they are servants of God and that they will be judged by God. We should sing to them Psalm 82, reminding them that one day they will stand before the Lord and answer for how they have treated the, the, the mistreated, how they have upheld justice, how they have helped those who are hurting. But regardless of how they respond, 
we are to serve God first and them next. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are free. We have been freed from sin. We have been freed from death. We have been freed from the fear that constrains the people who surround us. We have been freed from the emptiness of the lies that fill them and surround them and that orient their life. But don't use that as a means of feeding your selfish desire. Don't use that as a means of absenting yourself from the world. You were left here as salt and light. You were left here to show the world who Jesus is. So instead of using your freedom as a cover for evil, for selfishness, for sin, live as servants of God. And that's really straightforward. Very difficult, but very straightforward. Keep your conduct honorable. Honor everyone. Everyone. Not just those who deserve it. Not just those who have earned it. Everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love God's people. Fear God. Not man. Not powerful men. But the Lord our God. And honor the emperor. This, brothers and sisters, is how we live honorably in a dishonorable world. This is how we exercise the antithesis in our own lives. And as we do, they will know you are different. They will know you serve a greater king. They will know that you have something that they lack and they will either love you for it or they will hate you for it. But one way or another, they will know that you are the beloved of God, sojourners and exiles in this world. May God receive all the glory from the confession that fills our very lives. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set us apart from the ways that once drove us. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to live in a way that shows the world that we, because of Christ, are different that we have a hope, that we have a life, that we have a, a joy that they have not experienced. And grant that as they see in us that willing submission to God and because of God to the authorities over us, allow them to recognize, allow them to recognize your power. Turn the hearts of many of them through our witness that they might know that hope and that life. And Father, we pray that in all of this, through us, your people, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. In response, let us ask the Lord to empower us, to enable us to live in a way that is pleasing to him. As we sing number 450, O Master, let me walk with thee.